Dr. McClellan. Hi there. Next Bonjour in Ohio. Nice meeting you, finally. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the, um, miraculous global village. Yeah. Can you hear okay? Uh, we're just adjusting here as well. Uh, here's here likewise. Your father had a very broad concept of what media was. Um, and I would almost contend that this whole idea of having you and Andrew, um, both the um, son and grandson, of, it's a kind of a media. It's kind of a, uh, a medium of lineage, of descent, this kind of uh, circuit of communications. Um, and in connection with that, we're also doing it <coughs> via video conferencing, which uh, kind of ties in this whole global village aspect of it. Um, what do you think your father would think about this? You mean, what would he think about our situation? Right, right. <coughs> He'd think we'd made a pretty good mess of it. That is, we have no more control over uh, these forms and these forces now than we did a generation or two or three or five or fifty ago. The only difference between us and our forebears is that a few of us have some idea of what's going on, and the rest are just as blind and stupid to the whole business as ever. You know, that kind of ties in. I pulled a couple of his talking points for us from some of the um, from some of the work. A couple of quotes that really struck me in the interview um, that um, was done for Playboy magazine. In, uh, oh yeah. Uh, he said uh, about this idea of the elect of people that kind of knew what was going on with media and people that he said that the people that actually had a real intuitive sense. Of what of the ontology of media, of what media entailed as an environment was pretty scarce. He, he goes as far as saying most people, from truck truck driving to literary brahmins, are still blissfully ignorant of what the media do to them, unaware that because of their pervasive effects on man, it is the medium itself that is the message, not the content, and unaware that the media is also the visage that all puns aside, it literally works over and saturates and molds and transforms every sense ratio. The content or message of any particular medium has about as much importance as the stenciling on the casing of an atomic bomb. But the ability to perceive media-induced extensions of man, once the province of the artist, is now being expanded as the new environment of electric information makes possible a new degree of perception and critical awareness by non-artists. So he gave a certain amount of credence to the idea of the artist initially, but he, he kind of marks a kind of shift going on in the sense that the common man is kind of becoming more and more aware of what is going on in the uh, media environment. Um, would you comment on that? The the artist is the only guy in our culture who has the tools to study the environment and to look at or imagine uh, the character of environmental effects uh, as produced by media. Um, it, you mentioned a, a very famous phrase, the medium is the message, and it's the title of chapter one in Understanding Media. <clears throat> um, and it raises immediately this uh, 
question about uh, what exactly constitutes a medium. Nobody ever asked that. Uh, McLuhan talks about the media. Understanding Media, the title of a book. Uh, <clears throat> when he wrote the book, by the way, the term didn't exist. People didn't talk about the media. Uh, that was something brand new in 1964. Uh, but... <clears throat> right, like even media studies, there's like an academic discipline was long, long down the road. No, there wasn't any discipline. There was right. no study of media. Anything of the kind that was being done was done uh, usually in the English department uh, because they had tools for dissecting texts. Uh, and keep in mind that the idea of studying media was, and even today still largely is, focused on the content. You study television, what you're going to do is look at programs. You study the internet, what you're going to do is look at what people use it for, what they do with it, and so on. But they're not studying the internet. They're studying the content. And it's a basic feature of all technology that the new thing always takes the old things as its content. TV, right. took, TV takes film and newspapers as its content. Easy cut. Radio takes the musical. Uh, and uh, the the drama. Uh, newspapers, obviously they don't have newspapers as their content. Uh, they have events uh, dressed up and turned into show business and, and so on with every technology. What do you use uh, the cell phone, the iPhone for? Uh, all kinds of things. We don't look at iPhones as you're doing it. You don't study what the telephone is or was or does. Uh, you use it as a platform to mount a whole pile of apps. Uh, and that, actually, we should get back into this. We are in the, uh, the deluge of apps at the moment. And the apps, apps relate to a very particular chapter in understanding media. Um, the, uh, the gadget lover. Right. Uh, and this is a, uh, a manifesto for the apps generation. Uh, I had a quick spin through the front of Understanding Media this morning, just before coming here. And uh, I, I noticed in there a lot of things that could be very useful uh, to the study of apps and the Internet of Things, the, the brainchild of the, uh, the study of apps. Uh, but we want to get back to that in a bit. First, I wanted to go after this idea of media and medium. All media from the alphabet to the computer are extensions of man because deep and lasting changes in him and transform his environment. Now, <clears throat> at a number of places in understanding media, my father says, in effect, if not literally, a medium is an environment of changes. A medium is an environment of services and disservices that your new form puts into place, and without which the new form can't, can't exist, it can't work, it can't function. Uh, now, <clears throat> so, so when you say the medium is the message, they're not talking about the TV set or the phone in your hand, they're talking about the environment that those things function in, and it's that environment that changes you. Let, let's just take a second 
uh, and ask, what's the medium of, uh, I'll pick an easy thing like a motor car, which is a favorite resort of mine because it's so off the wall. Well, the moment you ask, what's the medium of the car, or what's the medium of radio, or what's the medium of film, you realize right away that the car is not the medium of the car. The car is the content. The medium of the car is the road. And all the changes that accompany the car in your social and personal lives, in your work life, uh, people, once we have cars, people can live some distance from where they work. Whereas without cars, it was usually walking distance. Or you lived upstairs or in the back or next door. Uh, it changed the nature of cities. It destroyed almost overnight, overnight the hold of the railroad which had a lock on cities. So it made a whole new kind of society possible, uh, which we embraced immediately. Um, anybody who's got a bit of age under his or her belt can tell you about, about the romance teenagers had with motor cars in the 50s and the 40s and the 60s, until things came along and a new medium came into place. Um, but the life of the teenager would have been a vastly different thing without motor cars. We wouldn't right. have had drive-in movies. Or I remember that your father had spoke to this idea of this resurgence of the romantic idea of the knight and certain elements of chivalry sure. on back of the resurgence of the automobile uh, and mm -hmm. chariot. In um, fact, truck drivers used to be called knights of the road. Not, be not because they drove at night, but because they were in that position of, of the knight, the traveling uh, uh, Mr. Fixit. The truck driver could do anything, but he was also king of the road. The cars were uh, sort of traffic, but not serious. Trucks, that that's serious stuff. But it was already in the language. That's what I'm pointing out. The night of the road. Well, if you think of a guy behind the wheel, uh, here you have a man or a woman in a tin suit traveling at a very high speed. This pretty well describes a knight. He's wearing a tin suit, and he travels at a pretty good clip. Uh, <clears throat> how, how gentlemanly uh, he conducts himself is another matter. But come back to the medium for a minute, because this is where everybody trips up. This idea of the medium is the message, uh, and of course, it's uh, in terms of figures of speech, this is a paradox. Uh, it's like uh, saying that uh, a, a dome, uh, you know, one of Bucky Fuller's kind of geodesic domes, is much, much bigger on the inside than it is on the outside, uh, which anybody will uh, confirm who's been in a dome, and to everybody else it's nonsense. How can that be bigger on the inside than it is on the outside? Um, but you have to have had the experience in order to know what that means. It's the same with all paradoxes. They relate not to logic, but to experience. Uh, so to say the medium is the message was an idea, uh, a technique for drawing attention to the word medium. It was supposed to make people ask, well, what's he mean by medium, if that's true? And look what happened. Uh, exactly the reverse. People ignored the word, and they focused on the contradiction and tried to make sense of this saying 
using the tools that they had at their disposal, and they don't work. He seemed to frame a lot of his intellectual inquiry and these ideas, and he even called them probes. These kind of open interrogations of the way things operated that weren't necessarily written in stone. I think a lot of people, in fact, even in the Playboy article, when like when his feet were put to the fire, he was saying that you know he was never saying that the content itself was was just absolutely incidental. Uh, or uh, coincidental, rather, but he was attempting with these kind of assertions to draw attention to the paradoxes involved um, to get people to get uh, more anti-environmental, to use another term, to like stand off and apart from these things, um, these kind of thought um, experiments um, to get people to start thinking, just changing the, changing awareness. It seems like the mission statement always hinged on changing awareness? The probe is an interesting device uh, because the idea of the probe isn't to state a truth but to uh, fly a trial balloon. Uh, You could equally say in front of any probe, suppose, and then let the probe out, uh, because it's supposed to make you think. The probe isn't supposed to be the answer. It's a kind of inverted question. Uh, so you try all sorts of things as probes. Just as when, let's say, you've got a handful of keys in your hand and you're trying to open a door. You try one. If that doesn't work, you try another. If that doesn't work, you try another. And so you keep trying probes and battering away at a situation from every angle uh, until it begins to open up. Uh, and this is the technique of exploring and of making discoveries. You don't begin with the answer. You begin with a whole pile of questions and you wait and see what happens. Uh, it's also called empiricism. Right. It's like, um, I know I was reading an interview with you when after you had uh, finished the book Laws of Media, that you guys came up with this idea of what we now know as the tetrad which was less of a probe and more of a kind of foundational um, dynamic. You go as far as saying that at the point of the tetrad, now we're dealing with things that are like verifiable laws that are applicable to all kinds of situ- any situation that involves human um, production. Can you talk a little bit about, I don't want to get into a lot of academic um, ephemera as much as I would love to. Um, can we talk a little bit about the tetrad and what it is? We've talked about it in class. Oh, you did? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, we did go over it a little bit to the degree that we could wrap our heads around it. I'd, I'd like to take a little poll of the class right now. I'd ask, um, how many of you have read some or all of Understanding Media? Uh, and I'm quite unable to see a, a show of hands. Perhaps you could tell me. Very many, one or two, five or ten, half? What would you say, Nick? I'm counting it once again. About seven, eight. Okay, so about a third. respectable. How many of them have uh, had a look at laws of media? No hands. No hands. Oh, goody. (laughs) (laughs) Then it doesn't matter what I say, you won't know if I'm being honest or not. Okay, the, uh, here's what happened. The tetrad we stumbled across. Uh, 
We didn't know what we were doing. We're just poking around and probing. Uh, Understanding Media came out in 1964, and it made a big splash. Actually, if you want to have some fun, go back and look at some of the reviews, the critical reviews of Understanding Media. Uh, and next, if, I, if I remember correctly. Oh, they, um, they felt like uh, people working in a slaughterhouse. Here comes a big fat lamb and they just gave it everything they had. Uh, it turned out they were wrong, and they're still wrong. But that's beside the point. They had a ball with this book, partly because it was from outer space. Nobody had ever seen anything like this. This is not an academic book. It doesn't have pages of footnotes in the back. Uh, there are no answers in the back. No questions at the end of each chapter. Uh, and so on and so on. Um, and the style is not that one that you would pick for an academic audience. Uh, so the academics hated it. It had no contact whatever with what they knew. In fact, the people at McGraw-Hill, the publisher, were holding their breaths when they published it. They told my father, uh, look, we never publish a book that is more than 10% new. Right. You might keep this in mind when you're looking at your textbooks uh, or anything that you come across in your field. Publishers have an unwritten rule that they do not issue a new book that has more than 10% new material. Uh, now, keep that in mind, because this tells you something not only about the industry, but also about the writer and about their estimate of their readers' mentalities. Uh, so they said to my father, look, this book is not 10% new. It's about 60% new. We're going way out on a limb with this one. Uh, and 60% new meant it was from a different universe. Um, so what was new was partly the style and the fact that this approach did not look at content. What we call media literacy today is entirely content-focused, uh, content-oriented. So at some point you have to ask the question, what about the content? If the medium is an environment, what about the content? What's, what is the content? Uh, and there are a couple of answers here. One is the content is always the older environment. Well, think just in terms of an environment. An environment is a huge situation. It's like air pollution. It's an environment. It's everywhere. What's the content of air pollution, of polluted air? It's everything everything in the world. Suppose we have a new environment come around, come along, that goes around air pollution. What's the content of the new one? Everything. Every environment takes all the old ones as its content. So the ostensible content, the use to which the thing is put, uh, has a completely different significance from what you expect, uh, at least from what your English literature uh, training and critical training will lead you to expect. The, <clears throat> the content of radio, let's say, is the music hall and the newspaper and the drama. 
Okay, content of movies is books, stories, novels. Um, the content is almost entirely neutralized by the fact that it's being looked at exhaustively by people. The minute a new medium turns up, they start to, to discover and argue about what use are we going to put this thing to do. In other words, what of the existing jobs lying around is this one going to take over? Our current uh, fuss about uh, artificial intelligence and robots taking over jobs, well, of course, what did you expect? <laughs> they always take over the existing situation. But on the other hand, the new environment is getting zero attention. The content gets all the attention and the new environment gets none. That means the content is neutralized. It has no power to change you. It's watched closely and carefully while the medium is ignored. And so it is omnipotent. It can do whatever it likes uh, without any, um, any interference from the people involved. Uh, is it a lack so, of environmental awareness, you're saying? Yeah, it's the total lack of environmental awareness. One of the principles of environments is that they're invisible. As long as they're environmental, they're imperceptible. They change you and you can't be aware of it. It's like water to a fish or air to a, 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 a land person. Uh, the one thing you don't notice is the air, unless there's something wrong with it. And then you notice that for a few minutes and go back to your business. But to come back to the Tetrad, because I am actually trying to answer the question, McGraw-Hill said this book is brand new. In 1964 it came out, it caused a hell of a lot of noise. It got everybody angry, which wasn't bad for sales at all. Uh, and it remained that way for a long, long time that it, it remained controversial. It still is in many places controversial, as is uh, a lot of my father's work in many places. So controversial that you're forbidden even to mention his name on your PhD or your dissertation, because doing so, or at least taking a positive uh, attitude to McLuhan will get you fired, will get you failed. That still happens. It was everywhere in the 70s. Uh, it died down for a while, now it's back. The Tetrad, however, <clears throat> came about as a part of a challenge. McGraw-Hill said, look, it's 1970 now. 1974 will be 10 years since uh, Understanding Media came out. Why don't we, this is a wonderful, big-selling book, why don't we bring out a 10th anniversary edition? Because in the 10 years since... 64 and 74, believe me, a lot of things have changed. Right. We, we had satellites. We now had cable TV. We had recordings, TV recordings. Uh, you could carry a, 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 a port-a-pack, a Sony port-a-pack on your back. It wasn't much bigger than a backpack. Uh, and this would give you a small reel of a three-quarter inch tape or half-inch tape, videotape. All kinds of things have changed. Uh, so we thought, okay. And usually when this happens, the publisher expects the same old book with a couple of new chapters and a new introduction. Well, we started with the critics. We found out what the critics didn't like about the book. That was no secret. 
uh, <clears throat> we used all the work they'd been done in, in ferreting out mistakes, and, and that was one of the, the positive things about critics, is they work for you for free. They'll go through your book, find all the errors, <laughs> correct them for you. You couldn't afford to buy them. Right, and editorial staff for free, right? Yeah, it, it's very high-class editorial work, and uh, they do it for free. I've just finished doing this with a book I put out a couple of months ago. Critics pointed out some mistakes, said, thank you very much. Uh, but don't tell the critics, because they'll stop. <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> they found we found that, we corrected all those errors, then we looked around for, uh, because there was a whole lot of criticisms that this didn't cover. And the main thrust of the rest of the criticisms was quite simply, this wasn't scientific whatever the hell else it was, it's all very well for you to say these things, but it's not science. So we asked, how do you make a scientific statement? I'll make a long story short, it took us two years to get an answer to that question, and we're in the middle of the biggest university in Canada. But eventually, <clears throat> it boiled down to a statement by Karl Popper, who said that a scientific statement is one phrased in such a way that anybody can test it and falsify it. Anybody can say, okay, I'll prove this wrong. Or, right. It's kind of negative inductive take on it as opposed to what's there. Well, what, it's, what you've, got to, you've got to make your statement something that someone else can pick up, literally, as it sits, and test it. Uh, well, okay, you know... Uh, Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. You can test that. Law of falling bodies, 32 feet per second per second. You can test that. Uh, you may need a lab to do it, but you can do it. It can be done. Uh, so we asked, what are the statements we can make about all media? All media. And we're looking at understanding media. Because the Tetrads came out as a result, as a follow-up to understanding media. They should really be considered one book. Uh, <clears throat> and in one afternoon we found three of them go just going through part one of understanding media. One was every medium or every technology, every innovation enlarges something that's already there. You get the old thing only it now goes faster or costs less or it's bigger or it has more chrome or whatever. There's an enhancement enlarging phase to it, amplifying. Second, every innovation, every human innovation, pushes out of sight or off stage, pushes off stage something that's already there. So the motor car... Lots of lessons. Yeah. The motor car changes the life of the horse. And television changes life in Hollywood. Uh, and radio changes musical and comedy and all kinds of things. It changes music, for that matter. Um, every innovation, another one, every innovation pushed far enough will reverse its properties. We call it, what's the name of that book came out recently? Tipping. The Tipping Point is basically... Malcolm Gladwell, right. Gladwell, thank you. I was trying to think of that. Uh, that's... Uh, that's the chapter in Understanding Media called Reversal of the Overheated Medium. 
Oh, yeah, we did read that chapter. Chapter three. It's uh, that is the tipping point. Only in 1964, Gladwell took a, a long time to get around to doing this job. Forty years, come on, two generations. That should have been done in 65. Anyway, well, he was too young. Uh, <clears throat> one afternoon, we found those three. So have a look when you're done here. Have a look in your books at uh, uh, reversal of the overheating medium. Keep in mind what the word medium means. It doesn't mean the thing. It means an environment. Okay. If you keep that in mind all the way through understanding media, you'll see that book is very easy to read and understand. No problem at all. Coming back to the Tetrad. One afternoon we found three laws that seemed to apply in every case. Seemed like a good day's work. Uh, so the next day we came out and we started looking for numbers 4, 5, and 6, or 7 and 8, and we didn't find anything. And that held for the next three weeks, the end of which time we found number four, uh, or a fourth, because there isn't a uh, number of them, and they aren't in a sequence of one, two, three, four. Uh, all of these things happen at the same time. The moment the new thing occurs, all of these four changes happen simultaneously. They happen. They don't all manifest at the same time, but they're there. So the fourth one turned out we already had a book on it called From Cliché to Archetype. It's the process of uh, obsolescence and retrieval. Obsolescence is that one, what is it set aside or push off stage when the new thing appears? Uh, but there's another side to that coin, that, that, rever that uh, dynamic, and that is retrieval, something old very old, comes back in a new form. So you get the knight in shining armor. He comes back in this new form called the motor car. Uh, and that's true in every case. The retrieval is usually where the arts and the fashion industry come in full tilt. Uh, fashions change because every one of them is a retrieval. Whenever you see a change in fashion, Look around and ask yourself, what's prompting this change? What has changed in the way in which we look at ourselves and each other that made this old thing suddenly seem relevant or suddenly acquire new relevance? Uh, right. This, uh, whole, this whole cultural phenomenon of retro, retro everything. Retro everything. Part of yeah. our, our, our culture. They, uh, they tell me in the fashion industry, there is no new style. They, all styles are valid. It used to be the case, if you check with your grandmothers or grandfathers, you'll find that every year there was a very pronounced change in styles. Uh, and it was immediately uh, identifiable, even in motor cars. You go look at a parking lot now and you'll see maybe 20,000 cars that look the same. Uh, used to be, go look at a parking lot, you see 200 cars that were all different. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> anyway, where were we? The Tetrad. It, it surprised the hell out of us, but we found after working at this thing for several months that we were stuck at four. There seemed to be four laws. Four 
universal statements that we could make, you could make, anyone could make about all innovations without exception. <clears throat> now, there are a couple of riders here. One is they have to be human innovations. They can't simply be, uh, oh, a natural event like an earthquake or uh, a rainstorm or something uh, or a tsunami. No. Uh, because natural things are never carried to a reversal point, for one thing. They don't retrieve older situations. They don't change sensibilities. Uh, they work in a different kind of universe. Uh, a second thing <clears throat> is they not only have to be uh, human innovations, um, but let me, well, I'll come back to that point. <laughs> The big thing was there were only four, and we left the question open. It's now been about 30 years since understanding media, uh, or since laws of media, rather. And right. we haven't we haven't found a number five or six yet, and I'm still keeping that door open because somebody might, might come up with a fourth or a fifth or a sixth, rather, uh, law that applies in all situations. Now, a second thing we found out about tetrads, we didn't call it a tetrad until much later. The second thing we found out about them <clears throat> was that the human in innovations they apply to don't have to be hardware things like, say, a wristwatch or um, a coffee cup or, or a book or a TV set or an iPad. Uh, they apply to any kind of human artifact. Clothing, any artifact of clothing uh, is, but then what about, let's say, what about a, a thing like a style in painting or in music? What about rap music per se? Not the lyrics, but just that style, that way of voicing uh, what we call music. Right, a style is a human artifact. Yes, it's something that humans make and use as a way of expressing you in poetry for example you could say uh, quite legit quite legitimately if you've read two or three anthologies and by the time you get through university you ought to have uh, if you've read a couple of anthologies you realize poems are by and large about the same thing year in year out century in century out they're about nature, they're about weather, they're about people, they're about love, angst, problems, solutions, same stuff. The one thing that changes from one era, one period to another is the style. The style is the way of seeing. It's the way you configure the senses and bring it to bear on this or that situation. And the reason the arts are very, very important in the study of media is that the artists come up with ways of seeing, ways of imagining the world around you that are suited to the world around you, and generally that look pretty bizarre. But the artist, the job, the job of the artist at this point is to help you explore the new ways of seeing that the new situation has provided you, and only the artist has the tools to do that. Nobody else. Kind of the canary in the coal mine, so to speak. Very much so. 
that's a lovely image, isn't it? An artist sitting in a cage hanging from a ceiling. Uh, right, now, right. <laughs> right now in contemporary art that kind of includes all that. And it's, I wanted to, so you're saying that the, even though the laws were formulated in 1988, um, uh, no, they weren't. They were formulated in 1971 and two and three. When, when the 10-year addition... You would contend that those four laws would apply to augmented reality, virtual reality, cloud computing, data surveillance. Everything gets everything gets covered within that tetrad. Absolutely, I have no hesitation, whatever, because there's a lot we haven't said or explored about the tetrad here, and that is in laws of media. Uh, I mentioned that it's uh, the four laws apply to every single thing that people make or do. And they do not apply to anything else. They don't apply to a bird's nest. They don't apply to, uh, oh, what, a beaver dam or any other product, animal product, just to humans. And one big reason for that is animals don't have arts. People do. Animals don't have retrieval. And they don't monkey with sensibility. But people do. Animals don't concern themselves with, I mean, think of ants, mosquitoes, uh, uh, tarantula spiders, uh, any kind of insect, any kind of small animal, mice, cats, dogs. Their attention is focused elsewhere, largely on, on treats and dog food and things. Um, no, these apply to human activities, human agency only. Uh, this surprised us. Um, and I mentioned style because it's a very obvious place. Uh, but anything else, theories of uh, philosophy, philosophical systems, any of these can be the subject of a tetrad. They will all show exactly the same thing. Any new philosophical system enhances some aspect of human experience, brushes aside older philosophical systems, that's a given, brings back, guess what, something very ancient. It always happens. Even the quantum mechanics brings back ancient things. Uh, and fourthly, pushed to an extreme, it will flip into another form. And well, it's right. Your reversal, right. exactly. Um, and if you spot any one of these occurring anywhere, anytime in your uh, travel through life today or tomorrow or next week, if you see a reversal happening, stop for a second and say, okay, what's prompting this reversal? What's making that happen? Or you see a retrieval. Say, wonderful. Where's the rest of that tetrad? Here's the one. Here's the retrieval column. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, there we go. There's another way of doing it. Uh, now, that, that's just for general sharpening up. So to come back to the tetrad, it applies to everything human. It's a, you might say, as a consequence, the most human thing about us is our technologies, even the most right. inhuman of them. Dr. McClune, in Chapter 4, it talks about, in The Gadget Lover, and we spent some time with The Gadget Lover, this whole idea of the ways in which Every time a new media or a new, or a new media um, 
revolution happens, there is this phenomena, which he calls narcissus narcosis, this way in which, almost like a coping mechanism, um, due to the new stress, the new strain, ways in which we kind of numb ourselves um, to um, take a kind of anti-environmental stance and stuff and, and step out of it. Um, and um, it would seem as if, once again, we're in an environment that um, embodies those kind of like numbing, desensitizing, um, hypnotizing effects. Do you think that the tetrad is a possible um, tool to act as an antidote to that? Absolutely. Uh, and we found this out also in uh, remember now, we're trying to rewrite Understanding Media and bring it up to date when we do this. Uh, so you might ask, well, <laughs> that's just totally different. Uh, what's that got to do with Understanding Media? And the answer is, uh, uh, first glance, nothing or very little. Uh, and that was McGraw-Hill's reaction when we took it to them, by the way. They looked at this, they said, this isn't what we wanted. Give us a couple of chapters. Uh, so we went away and made a different book of it, uh, and uh, that. But that's another story. Uh, will the tetrad do this job? Yeah. The the thing with the narcissus myth was that narcissus didn't know this hypnotizing image that he was looking at was himself. He thought it was someone else, some imp or genie or uh, god or goddess in the water and manifesting to him alone. He didn't think of it as himself. And the reason that's a powerful myth for us is when we look at our technologies, we don't look at that and say, look, that's me. Those are extensions of me. No, we think of this as alien territory, as something else, as something separate from ourselves. And because it's separate, it won't have any direct effect on us. And that's a lie. We know that. Uh, so the tetrad is, is structured in a way that it brings, at every point, uh, to your attention, your uh, participation in this new form. The fact that it's part of you. Uh, Take a look at, uh, if you want to look at the wrong way to study media, go look at the literacies program, the film literacy, uh, computer literacy, iPhone literacy, uh, and so on and so on. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them now. Uh, and all of them are focused on studying the content and not looking at, that is, studying the picture and not looking at the image in the water as being part of yourself, but looking at it as something separate that you have control over. You don't. All you have control over in the media is the content. And this whole narcissist uh, modality, it seems as if social, um, social um, networking sites would certainly fall under that. I mean, just the term itself, Facebook, seems to imply that there's a kind of hypnotizing mirror um, to that, um, kind of the, to this interaction. We're really looking at ourselves. Yes, you are, at every turn. Uh, the most uh, beguiling uh, thing about the media is their absolute and unremitting 
power to enslave the users. They are immensely addictive, as I'm sure everybody in the room today will agree when we're talking about the things you have at your hand, at your elbow right now. Uh, your small phones, your iPads, uh, your small computers, and so on. Uh, the devices you listen to music with, uh, whatever they are. Look how enslaving they are. Uh, and look at all the effects they have on your social lives. Your social lives suddenly draw in. They become much more circumscribed. Um, you don't get up, you don't get out. You're not very active physically. Uh, you spend one thing. Yeah, and here's something you can check with anthropologists. Uh, when I took anthropology in university, they made a big deal about the difference between humans and apes. Um, over this business of the opposable thumb. So because of this thumb, we could do all kinds of things. We could grasp tree branches and so on in a new way and swing from limb to limb, which you can't do if you're grasping with the whole hand like this. If you wrap your thumb around on the other side and hold, then you can do things. Uh, if you're just grasping with the palm like that, you can only go so far. The um, one of the big differences between the highest of the higher apes and humans is this opposable thumb. But now look what you do. Look what you do with your phones. You don't use the opposable thumb. You use the thumb now as a digit, as an index finger to tap keys. Uh, now this is a very small thing, a very slight thing, but they made an immense amount out of this one little item, the significance of this thing. Uh, and we've now reversed that. Look what we've done. We've reversed it. We've pulled the plug. I'd really like to ask you about something, about a very well-known observation that your father made regarding... Ah, uh, Trump has discovered something that's been in the cards for, oh, generations. Uh, and that is, he's, he's found that in the electric age, you don't need representative government. Uh, and he's playing around with this and skirting uh, around the edges of this situation. Uh, representative government was invented in a day of very slow transportation and very great distances. If you have people in, in uh, California and their government is in Washington, D.C., uh, it's going to, you don't have a good mail system, you don't have radio, TV, and so on. Think back 18th, 19th century. Uh, how do you govern? What do you do? Well, you pick somebody from your crowd to go to D.C. and be you. 
re-present your ideas and so on to the other people gathered there. That's a workable thing in a railway age. Uh, but in the Twitter age or the age of the internet, you don't need a rep. You can be there. You just pick it up, tap a couple of keys, next thing you know, there you are. Just as I'm right there in your classroom right now with you. And you are right here in my dining room with me. Right. We are simultaneously in both places. Uh, and this is a very low definition experience, very cool experience. Uh, you you can't pop this one up. You can't start shouting and screaming and running about at full tilt and banging. It's just chaos with this. Um, and so radio likes a lot of heat, a lot of excitement, a lot of shouting. Bigger the better. Um, but television doesn't like that. Television is very laid back. Uh, no, I'm thinking in terms of 50s, 60s. Okay. Uh, so to say Hitler wouldn't have lasted five minutes on TV is perfectly accurate. The difference between Kennedy and Nixon wasn't that great, but it was there. It was a little difference. Kennedy was a bit cooler than Nixon. Nixon a little slicker uh, and a little more formal. Kennedy a little less formal, a little more laid back. Uh, they weren't big differences, but they were enough to change an election. If you look at the difference between radio and TV, the differences are immense. So you take a radio, somebody who is popular and successful on radio, and put him on TV and he dies. And they did it. Right after TV came in, right through the 50s, the later 50s and very early 60s were bloodbath. All the popular uh, shows uh, from radio tried their hand on TV and they bombed. Jack Benny bombed. Fred Allen bombed. All the great comedians from radio bombed. They didn't work. Why? Their style was wrong. The way of imaging and of imagining, the way of using the senses, had to be in one posture for radio and a completely different one, different one for uh, television. Uh, and it's exactly the same with radio and with print, or TV and print. Or for that matter, this screen here and the printed page. They have utterly different effects, which is one reason that print is dying in the age of print on the screen, of the alphabet on the screen. Newspapers are folding, uh, bookstores are folding, secondhand stores are folding. One measure of a university town is the number and quality of its used bookstores. Most towns don't have very many of those anymore. Uh, <clears throat> when you change the sensibilities and you change everything, the content can remain the same, but the sensibility is different, so the effect is different. The content of a medium can change the same, but the medium will change everything. Quick example, a movie on TV and the same movie in the theater. The difference is palpable, and it's been remarked for ages and ages. But it has nothing to do with the size of the screen or the content. The content's the same, but the experience is different. The movie in the theater has one experience. The movie on TV, not the same experience at all. 
And this has been tested many times as well. Certainly uh, <clears throat> not the television on your iPhone. Yeah. Have you ever asked the question, how come, why do they put a soundtrack on TV shows, but they never put a soundtrack on movies? A laugh track, an audience track. The idea, of course, is absurd, isn't it? A laugh track on a movie? Woody Allen might get away with it, but <laughs> who else? Uh, why is it appropriate to have a, a laugh track on a show on TV? It has to do, of course, with audience involvement, but it also has to do with the senses. The senses are where everything plays out, and they're the one thing that nobody examines. How are we doing? Pretty good. Um, I haven't heard a lot of questions from the audience. Uh, yeah, I would love to. I would just love to open this up for questions. Would you should consider today's social media more leaning towards hot or cold media? You know, Facebook, Snapchat, all this stuff we've got in our, our smartphones. Would you, is that more, you know, a hot form because it's, you know, more interactive or colder because it's more laid back? All right. Uh, cold, hot and cold seemed like a good idea at the time, at the time the book was being written, because uh, people talked about uh, hot jazz and cool jazz and not just music, some things were hot and others were cool. Slang terms are usually pretty potent, and if they hang around for a while, which is a big if, uh, then they can be quite useful as teaching devices. Hot and cool. Okay, the idea of hot and cool in the book, as stated, was that hot media, hot situations, uh, didn't uh, lead to increased involvement, but they usually led to separation. If somebody starts screaming at you, you don't move in closer. You, you back up a little. And if they get sort of rowdy and scream a little louder, you back up a little more. You don't move in closer and start hugging. Um, a very hot situation like that, one that's really well filled with information and excitement and so on, doesn't it, it require or even invite involvement. But a low definition, not much information coming across, low definition invites participation. If I start to speak a little less loudly, a little less distinctly, the inclination is to move closer, to cant one ear, to listen better, uh, and so on, to become more involved in the situation. Uh, so my father was thinking about senses, sensory experience, and participation. Hot media? Well, there are no absolutely hot media and no absolutely cool media. Uh, they're relative terms. Some media are hot compared to others and cool compared to still others. Uh, movies, for example, very hot. Very hot compared to the page, the printed page. Very cool compared to TV. TV is far more involving. You might ask, which is more involving on, uh, let's say, on, on your color TV set? Which is more involving? Which is cooler? A black and white, a monochrome movie being shown in black and white on your screen, or a color movie being shown in color 
on your screen. Which is the more involving image, the black and white image or the color image? I won't keep you in suspense because <laughs> we don't have a whole lot of time. But the answer, the answer is it's the black and white image is far more involving because you have to do a lot more to complete the image. I'll, I'll get to you in just a moment, okay? Let me make this, this point. On the TV screen, on the computer screen, they boast you have a palette of colors here that you can work with if you're presenting uh, stuff to an audience of 256 different colors. Uh, now, hold it. On the screen itself, technologically, there are only three colors, red, green, and blue. Everyone knows this, RGB. So where do the other 253 come from? If there are 256 colors available, the answer is quite simple. You provide it. You provide all of the colors except for red, green, and blue. That's involvement. It isn't the ideas and the content that involves you. It's the way that your senses change and become involved and participate in the process of making that image. Now, so you have a color film up and you're seeing it in color and you're participating like crazy. But black and white, come on. Black and white is even more involving because black is not just the absence of color. It's the absence of light on the screen. And white is the presence of all of the colors at once. So you have to take red, green, and blue, use them to make all of the colors in order to get white. A black and white movie is more involving than a color movie. That's fascinating and somewhat counterintuitive, but <laughs> very fascinating. But look, keep this in mind when you're talking about hot and cool. Hot and cool doesn't refer to the content. It refers to the interaction and the involvement and the participation. The participation isn't with the ideas. It's with this, this extension of yourself and how that distorts and you have to compensate for the distortion of your senses. So it's actually rather thoroughly misunderstood, the whole idea of hot and cool. I've seen people take a line, draw a line down a sheet of paper and say, okay, the left side we're going to put all the hot media and the right side all the cool media. And the moment you see that, you know the person you're dealing with has not got the faintest idea of what that chapter is about. I hope I haven't blown the whistle on anybody here present. <laughs> you sound remarkably like your father's cameo in oh. Odell and Danny Hall when you say that. Well, he knew what he was saying. <laughs> Next question? Yes, another question. Hi there, you come on down, I can't move. Um, so my question is, uh, why do you think your father kept the typo in the title, um, the medium is the message instead of... That was a mistake. <laughs> well, I see you grinning, and I said it that way deliberately. But it was. It was a mistake. It was a typo. Uh, the book had been set in type and gone off to the printers, and they'd run off galley proofs, and they sent back a proof of the cover and the opening pages, and it said, the medium is the massage. And it was supposed to say, the medium is the message. Yeah. 
but the the printer had made a mistake. He put an A instead of an E. Now the next thing is why do we keep it? Because it's a damn good set of puns. The medium is the massage. It's also the mass age, right? Medium is the message, and it's also the mess age. Hey, you couldn't have done better if you tried. So we left it alone. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. First of all, I just want to thank you for this. I mean, so often we're just reading in in in, in books, and it's it's so good to like actually talk to someone who who knows it, who's there, who lived it. So I, I really appreciate this. Um, I did. I want to ask you. Um, do you see the global village as a utopia, as some have, um, something darker or something different altogether? Yeah, there are a lot of people who think of it as a utopian idea. Global village. Oh, what a wonderful! I live in this huge, horrible city—New York or Chicago or Toronto—or oh, if only life were simpler. Uh, village father, life. Your father didn't celebrate that idea. Village life was never simple. It was, <laughs> if anything, far more complex and convoluted than uh, city life. Uh, no, he didn't think of the global village as um, a utopia of any kind. Uh, by the way, notice it's a retrieval. I said there are retrievals going on all around you. So. What we have done with electricity is retrieve the conditions or the experience of village life. Only the village is not just a square mile or two, it's the size of the whole planet. Uh, we've gone a step further with satellites and space travel uh, and turned that village into a theater. And the satellites are the proscenium arch. And so we now live in the global theater in which everybody's an actor and there is no audience. Everybody's an actor. Everybody's a participant. You can see this dramatically with the internet. Everybody's an actor. With what we're doing here right now, you are now actors in this show. Uh, not just me. And, uh, but now think in terms of the globe. The global village, uh, if it really is a village, is not a very pleasant place at all. There's no privacy. Look around you. No privacy. Not very nice. In a village, uh, everybody lives in everybody else's pockets. That is, you're that close. Everybody knows everyone else's business. They know everybody else. They know their parents and their grandparents and their grandparents, great-grandparents and so on. Uh, and if anyone sneezes, the whole village knows about it. Uh, or anyone misbehaves, look around you. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the news travels almost instantaneously in the village. Uh, 20 years ago, uh, if a guy in uh, Florida told a good joke to an exec in a business, uh, within half an hour, his cousin in Seattle would know about it and be telling that joke to his friends in Hawaii. This is Global Village. 
word of mouth travels very quickly. Everybody's involved in everybody else's lives and affairs. No privacy. Privacy is a, a real concern for you uh, because you don't have the, uh, the foundation on which privacy is built. Privacy is more than just being uh, apart from people. Ask yourself, does a guy on a desert island have privacy? No, it no, isn't. There's, no. there's not even any context in which to have privacy or not private. No. To have privacy, you have to have other people around. If you're all by yourself, you have solitude. You don't have privacy. Does a guy in solitary confinement in a maximum security prison have privacy? No. Doesn't have community. Privacy needs two things, and one of them is private identity. Without private identity, privacy is unimaginable, and it's not useful. There are lots of cultures that don't have privacy, and they don't have private identity. Private identity comes with the alphabet. So the more we undermine the alphabet, the more we yank the rug out from under privacy. This is a very mysterious matter that deserves a lot of attention. Dr. McClellan, do you think the erosion, I mean, with social media and all this, like the new normal, the erosion of identity and the erosion of privacy are interrelated? Of course. Uh, because private identity, I just said, is a precondition for privacy. If you don't have private identity, you won't have privacy. Is this why we're so willing to give up all, give up so many of our um, private, uh, you know, with the whole data surveillance and all that? It's not; it's just a non-issue anymore. Yes. If we don't, we don't value privacy because of this erosion of identity. It's like why fight to keep it? <laughs> no, the pri private identity means you imagine yourself as separate from everyone else, and uh, so you and everybody relate to each other at arm's distance. Uh, whereas with the internet, you imagine yourself as involved with everybody else. And the distance between yourself and them is down to a matter of millimeters. Uh, and in real life, uh, you'd have a physical distance. But uh, no, the uh, privacy is itself a curious thing. Private identity doesn't really exist on the internet. We use group identity there. Uh, only we call it private identity. Your group identity is given you by your group, your, your bunch of friends, the people with whom you associate. Uh, and you can change that mixture very quickly if you want to, can't you? Uh, so this is a condition that we last experienced in a similar form in the Middle Ages. Everybody had a little circle of friends with whom they shared everything, uh, exactly as you do your friends. In fact, you might call the friends on Facebook as a retrieval of that medieval condition. When Dante wrote the Divine Comedy, 
He wasn't writing for an audience of millions. He had maybe 20 people in mind as readers. That was all. T.S. Eliot was once asked, uh, how big an audience do you imagine you write for? And he said, oh, I don't know, 10 or a dozen people. Uh, that's a very different thing. Right? Those, those are uh, a different kind of society from what we have. But this has been given to us by the new technologies. Notice, again, it doesn't matter what you use Facebook for. It doesn't matter what you say or do on Facebook. It's going to change you into this shape if you keep using it. If you keep wearing those clothes, clothes make the man. If you keep wearing those clothes, you'll become what we you behold. We probably behold. Yep. Anyone else have a dying, a, a burning desire for a question? Because we're out of time. But I don't want to, if someone's really... Anybody, got a, anybody out there got a good one-liner? You win some, you lose some. Okay. My question is, how will the changes net neutrality might face in the future affect our global village? <laughs> we only have a couple of minutes. We need a couple of days for that one. <laughs> net neutrality. Well, first off, nets, the net is not neutral. That's the first big mistake. In that chapter, the medium is the message. It's pointed out that uh, the technologies are not neutral. We imagine they are, and that all the effects in here in the contents, in the way it is used or deployed, but it isn't. Net neutrality is uh, a nice numbing expression. It's designed to, to assuage your uh, misgivings about the net. Uh, now, how's it going to affect the global village? It's already done that. The global village has been gone for a while. Uh, my father invented that phrase, by the way, just so you know. The global village, he invented that phrase to discuss the effects of radio. That's when the global village started, with radio, in the 19th century, over a hundred years ago. Uh, <laughs> I still have people ask me, you know, this thing about the global village, does that apply today? Is that still happening? Well, come on. Several generations back, it's been going steadily ever since then. Uh, no, I think you have to look a little further than global village, especially now that we're thinking of moving away from Earth and, and establishing a, what, a farms elsewhere on other planets. Uh, it doesn't seem very likely that these things will happen, but we talk about them and we're throwing billions of dollars at them, so I guess we need to think about them. One more question. Anyone? There was a gentleman, he's still there, who I said, I'll talk to you later. Yeah, sure. Uh, I, think that's all, I think that's all. The next class is going to be... Oh, shucks. I will try, I will try okay. to make it quick. Um, could, would you, uh, I would, I would propose to add another, to add a, add a fifth, and that would be. Excellent. What have you got? Emergence, right? You, one piece of technology and another piece of technology, 
And you put those two things together, and you get a third piece of technology that you could never have conceived of um, by only knowing one of the two pieces. So, for example, um, like herd immunity through immunization. Like, if you only had penicillin, you could, like, never conceive of that. Or if you only had a syringe, you could never conceive of that. You put the two together, and you get something else. Or, like, uh, a current metaphor would be drones, right? So... Okay, um, there's there's a, an old uh, observation, about, since this is warming up for Christmas, I'll mention it. The old question, what do you give the man who has everything? The answer was penicillin. <laughs> there's a chapter in uh, Understanding Media that covers your question. <laughs> It's called uh, hybrid energy. What happens when you take two things and you bring them together and something new is born? A whole chapter on it, right there in the front of Understanding Media. Um, but any of these uh, liaisons between forms uh, are covered exactly by the tetrad. You simply you look at the coincidence of the two things and say, okay, when I put this and this together, what does that enhance or enlarge? What does it set aside? What does it bring? It fits perfectly within the tetrad. I don't see a need for a fifth, at least not there. Uh, but I'm still leaving it open as a possibility. Well, there may be a fifth. Uh, or, or the other side of that same coin, and I challenge you with this, maybe I've got one too many. Maybe there really are only three universal laws, and you can find one technology where one of those four doesn't apply. Right. I mean, you're kind of laying you're kind of laying uh, a potential career path at their doorstep. Well, or at least an assignment. <laughs> at, at a, yes, a very good one too, because even if you fail, you succeed like gangbusters. Right. Dr. McClellan, we gotta round this up. I want to just thank you so much for your time. I think it was a really great... Everyone. It was very informative, and you're such a charming speaker. It's just wonderful having you in, in the uh, class. Thank you once again. Oh, thank you. Thank you.